We lose. No, we still got power. Can you guys see me? I can't see you. We okay back there? You figure it out? Well, let's create some light. How about this? It's not that helpful. Anybody else have one of these? If you have one, just get it out. Maybe turn your flashlight on. Come on, come on, you can do this. There we go. Oh, I feel like I'm at a concert. This is great. <laughs> Leave your Bic lighter in your pocket. Just use your flashlight. This, well, this helps. It's a little bit. If I do it like this, I don't know if that's going to be. Oh, all right, good. We got one bank of lights. Okay, I think it's coming back. Are we good? Is there, okay, good. Good, good. We're making progress. I think I can... Oh! Wow. Okay, um, let me turn this off. I think I got enough light. Okay. Okay. All right, so the purpose of that lame illustration... It's simply this. Um, we're in 1 John, and uh, we've been talking about darkness and light, right? And, and here's something that I want you to know you can hang your hat on. Like, if, if, if you don't get anything else I say today, you could take this home and it could be life-changing. Here's something you need to know. Just the way God created the universe, here is a fact that is never broken. It doesn't matter how dark it is in a space. When you introduce light, light always wins. It doesn't matter. You could be in the deepest, darkest cave that has never seen the sun, and all you have to do is pull out a match and strike the match, and people can see that light from far, far away, right? And the more light that you add, the more darkness that gets chased away, right? You know, actually, we haven't done anything to change any darkness by turning all these lights on. What we've done is added light. And when you add light, it doesn't matter how dark things are, the light always prevails. Would you agree that in many ways, um, the world is a pretty dark place? Uh, you know... The bottom line is this, I think. People are unfulfilled. And they long for fulfillment. And so we chase fulfillment wherever we think we might find it. And usually we're chasing it down a wrong road that leads off a cliff, right? And so we keep trying this new thing and this new thing. Maybe if I had a new relationship, maybe if I had a new job, maybe if I had more money, maybe if I tried this adventure, maybe if I tried this drug, maybe if I went to this place, maybe if I got that really cool car, maybe if I, maybe if I, maybe if I, maybe I'd be fulfilled. And we keep trying that and none of it fulfills. And so what we have is a bunch of people who are striving for fulfillment because God created us to long for fulfillment, but we're looking in all the wrong places, and as a result, we end up in deep trouble. You know, what's astonishing to me, um, it's, not, it's not that there's a trend in our country where drug use is increasing. It's not really increasing that much unless you count the marijuana issue where marijuana is being legalized and all that, but, but I'm talking about hard drugs. 
they're not really increasing except for one category of drugs that is just skyrocketing right now. Heroin. Um, people are using heroin. Now, that blows my mind because I think most people know about heroin. This is not a new drug, right? Most people are aware that once you stick that needle in your arm, it owns you, right? And, and it controls you and you've got to have more and you've got to have more and there's a diminishing return, right? And so that high that you once had that your body says, I can't live without, you've got to have more and people will do anything to get it. And opioids, which is what heroin is, and other, even prescription opioids are becoming the number one drug of choice all across America, and people are once again in record numbers dying of heroin overdoses. 33,000 overdose deaths last year from opioids alone, according to the Centers for Disease Control. Actually, that wasn't last year. That was 2015. We don't even have the stats on 2016, but some are estimating it's double 2015, which was the highest it's ever been. It's really skyrocketing. And it, it seems to be very common, especially in the Midwest. Um, Ohio is one state that's having just a horrific bout with this. In fact, just this past weekend, some of you saw this on the news, this past weekend, in this little county in Ohio, in one county, 14 people died of a heroin overdose just this weekend. In, in Montgomery County, Ohio... The coroner just released this, that last year, over 60% of the autopsies that he did showed the cause of death was a drug overdose. 60%. People long for fulfillment, and they're not finding it. And people are getting depressed. And depression or, or emotional darkness is is on the rise like never before. In fact, um, if, you were to, uh, of the, uh, if you went to 1987, the number of people on antidepressants in 1987, for every person on an antidepressant 30 years ago, there is five people on antidepressants today. And hand-in-hand hand with depression is suicide. The suicide statistics are once again alarming growing at an incredible rate. According to the Centers for Disease Control, again, suicide is up 24% over the last 15 years nationwide. Today, more American teens and young adults die from suicide than cancer. More die from suicide than stroke, than heart disease, than birth defects, than pneumonia, than influenza, than chronic lung disease. Cancer, heart disease, stroke, lung disease, influenza combined don't kill as many people as suicide in the young generation today. Here in the city of Duarte, in our lovely little middle class suburban hamlet, gang shootings are on the rise, and we have had more people shot in the last year than I don't know how many years here in Duarte. And, and that's just this nice little suburban town. What is it like in Chicago? What is it like in Detroit? What is it like in L.A.? What is it like in New York? The, the statistics are staggering. But it's not just a statistical problem. It really has to do with values. And, and the most influential shaper 
of values in our culture is the media. Would you not agree with that? It used to be parents, but those days are gone. Now it's the media. And you know what? You might want to write this down. The media does not have your best interests at heart. Do you remember? Some of you remember this. There used to be a, a commercial on TV for Old Milwaukee Beer. And there's like four guys and they're out camping and they're around a campfire and they just look bored and they're having a terrible time and they're miserable. And one guy reaches in the cooler and he pulls out a can of Old Milwaukee and he goes, pop, and he pops that thing. And when he does, the Swedish bikini team parachutes in to their campsite. You guys remember this commercial? Oh my goodness. I, I got up off the couch, got in the car, drove to the store, bought Old Milwaukee, and opened a can. And I'm still watching the sky. I'll tell you this, the rapture's coming, but the bikini models are not. Here's the deal, guys. I know this is going to blow your mind. I know this is going to shock you. You probably weren't ready for this when you got here today. Commercials lie. They are selling us something that isn't true. And, and we're not just seeing it in, the, in, in you know, direct ways like that, but we see it in subtle ways in media because it's woven in. The world's values are woven into the television shows that we watch and the movies that we enjoy and all of those kinds of things. Now, let me be clear. This is not a sermon on everybody uh, should burn your records and get rid of your televisions and all that kind of stuff. That's not my opinion. I enjoy movies and television as much as an expert. And what I'm saying is this. Media, in general, is having a dramatic effect in influencing the values of individuals in this country. And we're talking TV. TV is not half the problem. As society continues and technology continues, it's not about television. I have a television in my pocket, Right? I have access to the internet. I have access to pornography right here. It's easy. I have access to any kind of website you can imagine. I can listen to any kind of music on here. I can, I can Snapchat my friends and send them pictures and receive pictures from them. I can do all kinds of things. Well, I say I could Snapchat, but I'm too old to Snapchat. I could Facebook. Here's the thing. It's not just television. It is... Um, Netflix and um, the internet and Snapchat and online porn and Instagram and sexting and go on and on and on and on. This is what's happening now. Am I anti-technology? No, I love the fact that I have this thing in my pocket. But I'm just saying, our culture is being radically influenced at the level of our values. And we need to realize this because television and other gadgets are having more influence on our kids than we are. In fact, a five-year-old kid today, on average in America, has already spent more hours watching television than he will spend talking with his father in his whole life. So who do we think is influencing our values? Here's my point. Things are dark. And there's evidence that they're getting darker. 
Now, of course, it's not all bad. A lot of great things in our culture. A lot of great people doing great things. There's a lot of great television shows and movies. There's a lot of great stuff on the internet. There's a lot of great music, all of that stuff. But here's the thing. The world is getting to be a very dark place. I think we'd all agree in that. But I have good news. All of the darkness in the world does not stand a chance against the light of Jesus Christ. Guys, we have to understand this. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is talking about being a cure for darkness. He is talking about being the one who comes and chases away the darkness. Light always wins against darkness. Last week, Pastor Byron talked about the first, uh, well, verses 5 through 7 of 1 John chapter 1, and he talked about this light-darkness metaphor, and he said, you know what? It, the Bible says God is light, and, and light is a source of life, just like God. And light speaks of glory and grandeur, just as it speaks of that with God. And light guides us, just as God guides us, and light speaks of purity, just as God is pure and holy. The good news of 1 John 1 is that God is light and he has no dark side. And guys, this is one of those things. God's different than everyone you've ever known. Every one of us has our strengths and weaknesses, right? Every one of us has some good things and some bad things. Every one of our personalities has some wonderful things and some dark things. But not God. In fact, take your Bibles and go to 1 John chapter 1. Um, we're going to be in 1 John for the next couple of months, so get used to it. Find a marker and put it there toward the back of your Bible. 1 John chapter 1, let's just get reminded of the context of what Byron shared with us last week. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, there's a prevalent lie out there that runs exactly contrary to what this says. And the lie is simply this, God cannot be trusted. See, it says here that God is light and in him there is no darkness whatsoever. And there's a whole lot of people today who are willing to say, you know, God is good and God is nice and God can do wonderful things and I like God and all that kind of stuff, but I don't fully trust him because you know what? If God's so good, why are there so many bad things in the world? If God's so good, why is my husband still a jerk? And I've been praying for a long time. If God is so good, if God is so wonderful, why am I still going in for chemotherapy every week? If God is so great, right? And we have these questions and we struggle because we go, you know, maybe there's a good side to God and a not so good side to God. I, was, <laughs> I made the mistake this weekend. I was with some friends and I let them pick the music we were listening to and they put on this country station. Now, I don't know what kind of music you like. I'm not here to bash you if you like ridiculous country music. That's not my point, <laughs> okay? But actually, I like modern country music. It's the old stuff, and this was the old stuff. This is the twangy, you know, dude with a one-string banjo guy, you know, and, and, then, and they're just playing this music, and I'm going, dear God, right now would be a great time for the rapture. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> and so this music's going on, 
and this old song comes on. I don't even remember. I think it was either Loretta Lynn or, or it might have been June Carter Cash, one of these uh, old country singers. And the song was, God's going to get you for that. <laughs> you guys heard that song? I hope you haven't. I mean, it's just repeated through the whole song. God's going to get you for that. Oh, God's going to get you for that. And I'm like, wow, this is not a seeker-sensitive song. <laughs> this is like... Really, and it just goes on and on. God's going to get you for that. God, and I think a bunch of us sort of have that idea. I like God, but you know what? There's some stuff in my life that one of these days, he's going to get me. I really, and, and, and you know what else? I trust him a little, but if I was to trust him with everything, I'm pretty sure he would mess it up. If I was to give God this relationship that is so important to me and actually start, start trying to glorify him in this relationship, I know he would screw the whole thing up. If I was to actually turn over my finances to God and say, God, I'm going to do this your way. This is your money. You decide how it's going to get spent. I know that I'd be living in the poorhouse. And, and I'm just a little concerned that if I trusted God completely, that he'd cut the legs out from under me and I'd be sorry. The enemy's lie is always the same. God can't be trusted. It's the lie that he told in the garden. Does God said you can't eat from this tree or you will die? No, he didn't say that. He, he, or he, he said we can't eat from this tree, not that we can't eat from any tree. Well, God's lying. He, you surely will not die. God is trying to keep you under his thumb. He knows that if you eat from this fruit, you will become like God. You won't need him anymore and you can be your own God. Why don't you try that? That's the lie. And it's the same lie that he tells in very different forms over and over and over and over. Be your own God. Be your own God. Make your own decisions. Trust yourself. God's going to let you down. What if you can't trust God? Guys, I want to clear this up once and for all. That is a lie. What the truth of the Word of God says, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. You can trust him. The moment I start to doubt God's goodness, I'm in deep trouble. That's why Byron told us last week, you've got to have right theology to begin with. That means you have to think rightly about God. Don't get confused about God, who he is, what his character is. One of my favorite authors is a guy named A.W. Tozer, and he wrote one of my favorite lines. He wrote this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If when we think about God, we think not trustworthy, then we're not going to trust Him. If when we think about God, we think limited in power, we're going to try to take control of our own lives. If we think about God and we think unfaithful, then we're going to be unfaithful to Him. But if we understand that what God has been, what's been revealed about God in Scripture is that God is all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving, and right on down the line, then there is nothing to be afraid of. It's not just that we don't have to be afraid of God, but if we are walking with God, we don't have to be afraid of anything. But we've got to get our theology right to begin with, right? The people, so many people wonder, why do bad things happen if God is so good? Or, you know, is God going to do what I really need him to do? Or can I trust God to do the right thing? 
But those questions actually make no sense if we believe what the Word says, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Hebrews 11 says that if we're going to come to God, we must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. In other words, that He's good. The goodness of God has to be established. We have to trust that He always knows best, that He's always able to do best, that He has all wisdom and He's always right, even when I don't understand what's right. So, 1 John 1 brings up the contrast of light and darkness. And, and I just want to make this simple because it's going to keep coming up in 1 John. Light and darkness, light and darkness, light and darkness. And we're told that we're to walk in the light and not walk in darkness. So let me just give you a working definition for this light and darkness, okay? Darkness is unrighteousness. Darkness is doing what's wrong, right? And light is righteousness. It's what's right. For, for simple sake... We can think of it that way, but you want to hear something weird? 1 John tells us that God is light. All throughout John's writings and throughout the Scripture, Old and New Testament, we're told again and again and again that God is the light of the world, and Jesus himself attests over and over and over again that he is the light of the world. You read John's writings, John 8, 12, John 9, 5, John 12, 46, all of John chapter 1, all of John chapter 3, most of the book of 1 John, again and again and again, Jesus is the light of the world. 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 Anybody not have it yet? Okay. Jesus is the light of the world. But you want to hear something weird? Check this out. Go to Matthew chapter 5, the famous Sermon on the Mount, first book of the New Testament, book of Matthew. And let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is preaching here. Now, who is the light of the world? Jesus. Who is the light of the world? Jesus. All right, okay, just want to make sure we got that because I wasn't sure if I mentioned it earlier. Jesus is the light of the world. Now, listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 14 to his followers. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Jesus is the light of the world. 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 Guess what, church? We are the light of the world. So when Jesus goes back to heaven, he says, don't worry, the world is not going to remain in darkness because I'm going to put my spirit in my church, and my church will be the light of the world. In fact, this is a huge theme throughout Scripture. And if you are a Christian, Jesus expects you, expects you to chase away darkness wherever you go. Because that's what light does. To shine wherever you are. We are the light of the world, church. So, if our culture is growing darker, where should the blame lie? with us. It's not that God has not provided light for the world. It's that somehow we haven't taken Jesus' command seriously and we've taken the light of the world and we've hidden it under a bushel instead of putting it on a lampstand. We're not a city set on a hill that gives light to everyone. And that needs to change. So there's actually a twofold problem. One is this lost world is characterized by darkness and sin. And the second is even as Christians, we still struggle with sin. That leads us to a really important question. What are we supposed to do about it? 
How do we deal with sin? Now, go back to 1 John chapter 1. And let's see if by chance John has anything to say about this. I'm hoping he does. 1 John chapter 1, and let's pick it up in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. <laughs> so, so what are we supposed to do about the sin problem? Well, we know at least this much. We had better not claim that it's not our problem right? If we say we have no sin, we're liars. If we say we have no sin, we're saying that Jesus is a liar because he says we have a problem with sin. And he's not just talking to lost people who don't know Jesus. He's talking to all of us. And and he's saying we all have a problem with sin. Now, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand. We're not going to set up a microphone and have confession time. But let me just ask you to think on your own. Do you have a problem with sin? I do. We, we have this problem even as Christians. You know, the Scripture teaches that when you're born, you're born in a nature to sin. It is your nature to sin. Just like a fish swims, we sin. That's what, we're born into that nature. That's why Jesus had to come, and that's why Jesus said, you must be born again, right? New life, new nature, and it becomes no longer your nature to sin. But we don't stop sinning altogether, do we? That's something Scripture calls the flesh. We're still struggling with the flesh. There's still this part of me that wants what God doesn't want for me. There's still this part of me that wants to be the Lord of my own life. There's still this part of my heart that is not fully surrendered to God. And so I struggle with temptation. And we could talk all day about what a terrible devil it is. And we could talk all day about what a terrible world system we live in. But you know what James says about temptation? Where does it come from? Your heart. So the problem's with me. And I got to deal with that. And I have to face that. And I got to be honest about that. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 3. Go to Romans chapter 3. And let's uh, pick it up in verse 9. By the way, book of Romans deals with this subject extremely well. It talks about, you know, who is God, who is man, what is our problem, and what is our solution. And in the what is our problem section, that's chapter 3. And in Romans chapter 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 9. He's been talking about Jews and Greeks and how the Jews tend to look down on the Greeks and think they're better than the Greeks. And here's what he says, and he's a Jew. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what the Word of God says about the condition of mankind. 
And so John says, listen, we can pretend and we can redefine sin and we can say that what's right for me is right for me and what's right for you is right for you. You can paint it and dance around it any way you want to, but here's what the Bible says. You and I have a serious problem and this problem is called sin. And guys, I'm going to just get off my notes for a second and, and just share my concern that I see as a growing problem in the Western church. We are so concerned about not offending anybody and so concerned about making sure everybody knows Jesus loves them that we are afraid to talk about our problem of sin. And so, so much of the church, so many pulpits, the word sin has never been spoken. We don't talk about our problem. You know what we talk about? Grace. Why? People like grace. Who did, who did you ever offend by saying, I want to be gracious to you? Grace is wonderful. People love grace. The grace of God, he forgives. The grace of God, he heals. The grace of God, he gives peace. The grace of God, he gives joy. God is so gracious. God is so gracious. And we talk about his grace and we should never, ever stop talking about his grace. But here's the deal. If all we do is talk about his grace, then people will reject it. You know why? They don't need it. In their minds, they don't need it. If I don't have a problem with God, what do I need His grace for? If I don't have a problem with sin, what do I need His grace for? And so we're selling a product to people that they have no interest in buying because they don't know they need it. Guys, a balanced gospel presentation is, listen, you and I have the same problem. We're both dead in our trespasses and sins, but we also have the same solution. God loves us so much that he sent his son to pay the price to set us free from the bondage of sin and death, and we can have new life in him. But that new life message makes no sense if we don't explain that we have a problem with sin. The common belief in our culture is that there are no bad people. If people do bad things, it is not their fault. Either they were born that way, it's a nature thing, you know, I was just, that's how I was born. Or they have a sickness, you know, the disease model that, you know, we're, we're going to need therapy and we're going to need all that. We're always going to have this disease and there's nothing we can do about it. Or, or you know, they made a mistake, but um, it'll be better next time. Or, you know what, it's not the guy that's bad, it's his surroundings, it's his circumstances. If we could fix his circumstances and make his surroundings better, he will show us how great he could be. For all of human history, has that ever happened? And yet we keep believing that lie. What does God's word say? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many have sinned? All. And we fall short, that is we miss the mark. God's mark is holiness. His standard that we can't fall short of is holiness. We don't measure up. We willfully do what we know He doesn't want us to do. We have a problem with sin. Do you know anybody like that? Do you know anybody not like that? Romans 1 tells us, listen, we're without excuse. God puts within us a knowledge of Him. And then He surrounds us with His creation which screams of his existence. He gives us natural law, a sense of right and wrong, so we understand that some things are right and some things are wrong. We know that there's a God, and still we turn away from him. So the enemy tempts us to believe the lie that God can't be trusted, and that we should strive to be our own king. The holy God, or the messed up us, who makes a better Lord? 
It's a huge mistake to talk about the grace of God without helping people understand how much we fall short of the mark. So what do we do? We got this big problem with grace. I mean, this big problem with sin. What do we do? Well, the good news is back in 1 John chapter 1. Let's pick it up in verse 9. If, you might want to underline, highlight, circle that word, if. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that good news? I mean, that is spectacular news. Guys, just forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's just music to my ears. Forgiveness. I'm willing to face the fact that I got a problem with sin as long as there is a loving God standing there saying, hey, Doug, I have a solution for you. It's called forgiveness. Oh, but God, how much does it cost? I can never afford it. It's free. The price has been paid by Jesus. It's all about grace. It's not about works. Your forgiveness has already been secured. All you have to do is accept it. Forgiveness. How awesome is that? God's Word says that if you're willing to confess your sin and repent of your sin, He cleanses you from all unrighteousness and He gives you forgiveness. Guys, if that's true, and I'm guessing that many of you in the room who are Christians today already knew this. If that's true, if forgiveness is ours, if we can be cleansed from all unrighteousness, why is it that so many of us walk around as though it's not true? Why is it that so many of us walk around as though God can't really be trusted? He, he can't really do this. He says he'll do it, but he doesn't really do it. To watch the defeated lives that some Christians are living, you would think that God has no power at all to forgive. And that his forgiveness doesn't mean anything in terms of practical change. Too many of us seem to believe that there is some darkness in God that he really isn't going to come through it and keep his word and be faithful. It says, he is faithful and just. Amen. So, so here's what's going on for a lot of people. Picture, picture this. You were born with a terrible birth defect. You've, you've always been paralyzed from the neck down. You've spent your entire life in a wheelchair. You're 40 years old. Spent your whole life in a wheelchair. Someone has to push you around. You're not able to experience all the things that you'd like to experience because of the limitations. There's pain, there's difficulty, all that stuff. And somebody brings you to this rabbi named Jesus. And they wheel you up in a wheelchair. And Jesus, the Son of God, looks at you with all of the power in his name, places his hand on your shoulder and says these words, Be healed. And suddenly, for the first time, you could feel your feet again. Suddenly, for the first time, the pain just shrivels up and stops. Suddenly, you have movement in your fingers and your arms, and you're shocked. You've never felt this feeling in your whole life, and you're not sure what to do with it. And so you say, thanks, and you tell your friend to wheel you away, and you spend the rest of your life in that stupid chair. That's how a whole lot of Christians I know are living. 
Jesus said, I came to cleanse you. I came to set you free from the power of sin and death. And my word spoken over your life is forgiveness and cleansing and joy and peace. And we live as though we're still in a spiritual wheelchair. God's forgiveness and cleansing makes all the difference in the world if we'll live it. You guys know about King David, right? So one of the most famous godly men of God who ever lived. Every kid who's ever been to Sunday school has heard about the great King David, the great man of God. Well, you know, some of you will remember from reading your Bibles that, that David had a couple little things. It's a couple little minor mistakes, right? A couple faux pas where, where he did the wrong thing. Like that time where he's a king, right? And as a king, he can marry any woman in in the kingdom, he can, he, can, he can have whatever he wants in terms of that. And he goes up on the roof and he sees his neighbor's wife and he lusts after her and he says, I got to have that. And he takes her, right? And he commits adultery with her. And she becomes pregnant. So what does he do? He covers it up. He creates a whole scheme. I'm going to cover this up. I'm going to cover this up. And when the cover-up doesn't work, he has her husband put to death. So now he's got adultery, conspiracy, and murder. And what does he do then? He covers it up some more in a way that makes him look good, right? My poor neighbor, he died, and his wife is pregnant. Oh, you know what? I'll marry her. I'll take care of her. What a good guy, right? And he keeps covering it up until one day, God sends a prophet And the prophet turns on the old country station and says, God's going to get you for that. (laughs) And David has his heart broken when he comes to -to face-to-face with the sin in his life. And he secludes himself. He falls on his face before God. After all that God has done for him, this is what he's done to God. And he picks up a quill and a parchment and he dips it in the ink, and he begins to write a song, which we know as Psalm 51. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you. Just listen. Psalm 51. This is a psalm that David writes after he's convicted of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Psalm 51, he says this. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your greatness of your compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. There's no finger pointing. There's no blame shifting. There's no yeah, but. God, I've sinned. I sinned. It is my fault. None of this, well, if she hadn't been bathing with the window open. None of this, well, if Uriah had done what I expected him to do. None of this, well, I'm just a guy. What do you expect? None of this. My sin, God. My iniquities. I can't get it out of my mind. My heart is broken. God, I am at fault here. I need you to cleanse me. And he goes on, he says, I've always been this way. Let me just paraphrase the middle of it. He says, I've always been this way. I I was born this way. I'm broken at a deep, deep level. 
Oh God, I desperately need your help. And then here's what he says. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then, once you have cleansed me, then, do you see what's happened? He confessed. He's trusting in the cleansing. Then, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Once you cleanse me, I'll be ready to serve you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. I'll be able to praise you again once you cleanse me. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. I'll be able to preach about you again once you cleanse me. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And the enemy says, you know, God can't be trusted. You've got sin in your life, run, because he's going to get you for that. But if we will come to him and we'll call upon him and we'll own our sin and we'll say, God, it's all my fault. It is not my spouse's fault. It is not my culture's fault. It is not because somebody was mean to me. It is my fault. My sin is my fault. Oh God, cleanse me. Then he can take me off the bench and put me back into ministry. Then he can open my heart and I can begin to praise him. Then I can share with others and their lives will be changed. Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? Infinitely far. If you were to go north, and keep going north, you'd eventually reach the North Pole. And then if you kept going, you'd be going south. North meets south twice. East never meets west. God chose these words on purpose. How far has God separated us from our sin? As far as the east is from the west. Guys, this is great news. Our God is light. He is faithful. He keeps His promises. He alone has the power to forgive and to cleanse. And our part is to repent. That means stop walking in darkness. He doesn't just promise us heaven. He changes everything about us if we will confess our sins and turn from them. And to confess, you guys, don't, don't misunderstand confession. Remember when you had to confess to your mom? She didn't know who broke the lamp. And you had to decide if you are going to confess or not. I'll bet you didn't confess. Some of you are sitting there with a broken lamp on your conscience today from 1973, <laughs> right? And she never found out, did she? That's not what confessing to God is. When you confess to God, you're not going to tell him about something he didn't already know, right? When you confess to God, the Greek word means to agree with God, to agree with God about my sin. God, I hate my sin. God, I despise my sin. God, I turn from my sin. God, I don't want anything to do with my sin. That's how God feels about your sin. What is David known as today? An adulterer? A murderer? 
really terrible dad, because he was that too. He's known as a man after God's own heart. He's the epitome of what we think of as a man of God. All of his past forgiven. And he's a man after God's own heart. That's what it means to be cleansed. That's what it means to be set free. So wherever you are today, and we all probably think of ourselves at some point on the scale of light and darkness, I don't care where you think you are. I don't care if you see yourself as maybe the darkest person in the room or you see yourself as the lightest person in the room. Either way, you've got a problem, right? So wherever you are on this spectrum of light and darkness, how about we try this? Let's put our trust in His faithfulness. Confess. Repent. Be free. Let's bow our heads together. And I just want to give us a couple of minutes with God. Because um, maybe as I've been speaking today, there have been some actual specific things that have come into your mind and you went, oh man, I'm guilty. I haven't dealt with God. I, I haven't turned from my sin. And maybe you even looked and said, I'm not sure I want to. I just want to remind you today, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Maybe you just need to take a silent moment of prayer right where you are and talk to God. Confess. Repent. Let Him cleanse you right now where you're at.